Hey, Moving Forward listeners, I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about my new books. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know that I helped bring my dad's business into the 21st century with Poshmark. I've documented everything we've done so you can start a business right from your closet or expand an existing business with an effective e-commerce solution, even if you don't have a large marketing budget or social media following. The Poshmark Guide for Individuals and Small Businesses is now available in paperback and for Kindle. You can also find the Poshmark Journal for Individuals and Small Businesses with worksheets to help you manage your inventory and negotiate effectively and confidently on the platform. Both titles are available on Amazon, where you can find quick access links at bemovingforward.com or in my link tree, which is in the show notes for today's episode. Start learning and moving forward today. Hey, John Lim here. We're moving forward with episode 402, the write-up for episode 401, last week's episode in which I talk about select all for bulk share under Poshmark updates is available at the website at bemovingforward.com. Today, we're going to continue on with our Poshmark updates, and I'm going to talk about a relatively new feature, which was just added about not even two months ago, called Match Buyer's Last Offer, or what I like to refer to as, quote-unquote, boomerang. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But before we get to that, I actually wanted to take a minute or two to talk about some kind of bigger picture macro news as it relates to the Poshmark. This was something that actually uh, was announced uh, publicly after I recorded 401, which is why uh, I didn't get around to mentioning it last week. Um, so this was actually first announced at Poshfest, which was which is uh, Poshmark's annual conference. I did not get it to attend this year, um, but I did speak at a Poshfest two years ago. And then they publicly released a, a press release, and then it made kind of the business news rounds uh, about a week ago. And that is that Poshmark has been acquired by a conglomerate, Naver, which is a South Korean e-commerce company. And it was uh, acquired for approximately $1.2 billion. According to the financial news, it was an all-cash deal, which is pretty remarkable. And um, let's talk a little bit about it, because um, Poshmark has been growing quite a bit over the last couple of years. In fact, it's not even quite two years ago, I believe, that it uh, became a publicly traded company. And I don't often talk about the larger macro developments within the company because it's a little outside of the scope of what I focus on. I mostly focus on, with respect to Poshmark, tips to help you start a business or uh, extend a business if you already run one into e-commerce. But I think it is important once in a while to touch upon some of these uh, larger developments within the organization as they may have impacts on uh, how you run your business or new features or new markets or new um, uh, ways you can grow your business. So let's talk a little bit about it. So the first big implication of this is that uh, as of the close of the deal, Poshmark will actually no longer be a publicly traded company. It will be privately held under Naver. So uh, it's foray into the stock market and as a publicly traded company is actually rather short-lived. So we're, we're talking about two years, I guess, or not quite two years. So that's really interesting. Uh, so Naver, uh, I don't know much about it. 
other than it is a pretty big conglomerate, and their specialty is e-commerce. So it sounds like it's a pretty strategic move on Naver's part to acquire Poshmark. Uh, perhaps they're interested in moving into this area. And the idea of selling clothes secondhand, reuse, recycle, that ethos upon which Poshmark was founded uh, has grown quite a bit. There are quite a few platforms that also focus on this type of um, commerce. But Poshmark has also grown quite a bit in terms of uh, selling boutique items or wholesale items. And uh, when we started, we were one of the first, if not the first small business to use it as an extension for e-commerce. Now we're seeing more and more businesses using Poshmark and its model. Uh, so the, the big implication, the first one, is that it will no longer be a publicly traded company. And that's going to have ramifications uh, that are a little outside of the scope of the podcast. But having worked for a publicly traded company, having been through the process of being acquired by one, and then having uh, been through the process of working for acquisition companies and seeing companies that have, been, that have been acquired, I can say just generally speaking, this will definitely have some impacts on the culture of the company. Uh, being acquired by a larger entity, there's usually uh, some uh, adjustments, some growing pains to go through. Uh, but if it's a strategic fit it, overall, it, it can be a big benefit. So I'm not going to get into that aspect of things. Obviously, there are also going to be uh, big changes from going from being a publicly traded company into back into a private company, which is what Poshmark was before it went public. And uh, that also has ramifications on the, the culture and the way decisions are made and things like that. So just kind of be aware of that. What are the implications otherwise, specifically for those of you who are selling on Poshmark and maybe for those of you who are buying on Poshmark as well? Well, the, the, the answer is we don't quite know yet. It's really too early to tell, but I can glean a couple of things from what I've read in the press release and in the news articles. Currently, as it stands, Poshmark will continue to run as it is. And based on the press release, based on the news reports, Naver is going to just basically allow Poshmark to be a an independent entity. It's just going to have the backing of a much larger organization behind it. And it's still going to be called Poshmark. I don't think they're going to change the name or anything like that. In fact, my understanding is that the leadership at Poshmark is mostly going to remain the same. Although I imagine there's going to be some meshing of personnel, there, this is natural for any companies that merge, that there's always going to be an evaluation of staffing and that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of what could be the bigger picture long-term ramifications, really hard to tell at this point. It's, it's hard to pinpoint specifics. But I have two guesses. Number one is that Poshmark is going to continue expanding overseas and into international markets, which is a trajectory that it's been on uh, already, even prior to being acquired by a large company and one that happens to be based in South Korea. Poshmark, as I've talked about on the podcast, as I've written in my book, uh, has already expanded into India, Canada, Australia. So I think that's going to continue under uh, Naver. That's my guess, especially being an East Asian company, being based in Korea. I think uh, we may see expansion into East Asian markets. What will be interesting to see is if there is any cross-integration between those markets. So 
This actually brings me to something that happened to us about a week or two ago. Is we actually had an inquiry from a Poshmark Canada customer to see if we sell items across to, to Canada or ship items uh, to Canada. And currently, you are restricted by your, your continent. So if you're a Poshmark seller in the U.S., you can't sell to a Poshmark customer in, in Canada or in India or Australia and vice versa if you're in one of those uh, region selling, you're pretty much restricted to your continent in terms of geography. That may change in the future. And who knows, with uh, being under a big company like Naver that specializes in e-commerce, we may see some of those borders lifting in terms of trade. Um, there, there's a lot of logistical considerations that come with that. Uh, obviously, it gets much more complicated with things like shipping, but who knows, we may see um, not only Poshmark becoming more global, but individual sellers within Poshmark uh, becoming more global as well. So that's one possibility. But I foresee that at the very minimum, Poshmark is going to increase its international footprint. The other thing we may see is a continued expansion into other types of markets. So when we started, Poshmark was mostly geared towards clothing. They've since expanded into other areas like home goods. So you see things like, uh, you know, furniture, furnishings, things like that, even artwork. One of my uh, friends um, actually sells artwork on Poshmark, which is pretty remarkable. And then we've seen expansion into other areas like pet goods and most recently into electronics. Now, with Naver being an e-commerce juggernaut, we're probably going to see increased expansion into other areas. So time will tell what this acquisition will do in terms of how Poshmark will expand, how it will change. And uh, I'm interested, as interested to see what those are as much as anyone who's on the platform. And I will keep you up to date as appropriate as we start to see some of those things. All right, getting back to updates on the platform, updates for sellers. Today's update is on a new feature called Match Buyer's Last Offer. So let's start with the basics, and I've covered this on the podcast, and I cover this more extensively in the book, that Poshmark has kind of a unique feature that blends what you see on maybe eBay with what you see on Amazon, is that it's not simply a list and sell it place, that there is a lot of negotiating. So you may have an item that you list, let's say, for $100, A buyer can buy it outright at that price, or more commonly, a buyer may tender an offer, and that offer is is typically going to be lower than your list price. So let's kind of uh, unpack that a little bit. So negotiating and bartering is a big aspect of being a seller and a buyer on Poshmark. And if you're a first-time seller, it can be a little bit intimidating because when you get your first offer on Poshmark, you're going to feel a very strong psychological pull to accept that offer, especially if you've never sold anything before online, if it's your first time and your first offer. No matter what the amount is, you're automatically going to feel some kind of tug. And if you're not used to negotiating, it can be a little confusing on how to begin. And as I've talked about on prior episodes, I have an entire episode on pricing, I have an entire episode on negotiating, and I cover this very extensively in my book. Um, 
when you get an offer, traditionally as a seller, you can accept that offer. So if they come in lower, you can accept it and close the deal. You can reject the offer. If you feel like it's too low and it's just you're not going to get near uh, uh, a mutually satisfactory closing price, you can reject it outright. Or you can counter. So you can send back an offer in which uh, it will be higher than the offer they tendered, but maybe lower than your list price. Or you can you can just counter offer back at the list price if you want. So there's a lot of negotiating going on. Now, if you are not used to doing this, it can get a little intimidating and overwhelming, especially if you get an offer and maybe your gut's telling you it's not quite what you were looking for. You may feel a couple of conflicting emotions. On the one hand, you may feel like, well, this offer is not quite what I'm looking for. In fact, I had a friend who... First time she sold on Poshmark, she listed a very expensive name brand purse, got an offer that was a little too low, accepted it, and regretted it immediately afterwards. And I asked her, well, why did you accept the offer? And her answer was, well, I wasn't sure I'd ever get another one. So there's a lot of kind of FOMO or fear of missing out or what I call in the book, fear of missing out on another Poshmark offer or other Poshmark offer that may come into play. So there's a lot of different psychological tugs you might feel. And so one of the things that I talk about, and I've talked about this on the podcast and I go really deep into this in the book, is that it is important to approach negotiating not from an emotional standpoint because your emotions are going to pull you in many different directions and one hour you may feel one way, and another hour you may feel another, but to look at it very strategically. And I break this down in the listing and pricing process that when it comes to negotiating, I think it's important to define an upper bound, a lower bound, and a general area in between, which uh, I refer to as the ZOA or zone of agreement. Now, I talk about this on the podcast. I go into this in detail in my book, but really set out those guidelines. And in fact, for new sellers who are not used to doing this, write these down. Write down what your upper bound is. Write down what your lower bound is. Write down and define a zone of agreement that's in between. And basically what I'm saying is you're really setting up guidelines for how far you're willing to negotiate. Because every time you negotiate, well, first of all, when you list something and it's less than the price you paid for it, especially if it's brand new or if you're a retail company and you paid a certain price for it and you're marking it down, you're already giving up some satisfaction. And that's that's already built into the list price. Anytime you engage in negotiating, you are opening yourself up to less satisfaction than your list price. So that's really kind of that gray area. You're giving up something. On the other end, if you're a buyer and you put in an offer and a seller comes back with a higher counter offer, you're considering whether or not you're willing to pay more for that item. And there's that tension between buyer and seller. And the goal is you want to find a price in which both buyer and seller are going to at least be mostly satisfied. It's not going to be 100% because both sides are kind of giving up something, but the majority of it should be satisfactory on both sides. Now, that's the sweet spot. That's what I refer to as a zone of agreement because both sides are giving up something, but you're doing so in order to reach a mutually or mostly mutually satisfactory price in which to sell and close the transaction. 
Let's get back to our hypothetical. And it's easiest if I do this as a hypothetical. You list an item for $100, an offer comes in for 20. Now, if that offer is too low and just based off of the, the surface, it seems too low to me, I would do a whole upper bound, lower bound zone of negotiation analysis on it to already predetermine how much I'm willing to negotiate on this. But if I've done that and I've determined $20 is too low, I would typically reject it. Now, between 20 and 100, there may be room to negotiate. So I can also counter offer. So let's say I counter offer for $70. Okay. So that goes back to the buyer and the buyer then has 24 hours to decide whether they want to accept that counter offer, reject it, or counter offer it. Now, this is where the psychological pulls get a little more complex because anytime you're putting a counter offer back out there, you are risking the possibility that, is, that a potential buyer will reject it or not respond and you may not have a sale from that potential buyer. And that's where all these kind of FOMO type feelings come in. And that's where a lot of second guessing may happen where if you counter offer, even though you know that the first offer was too low, you're opening yourself up to the risk that if I counter offer, the person may not accept it and I haven't sold that item. It's still sitting in my closet and I don't know if or when I'm going to get another offer. So that's why I think it's really important to be strategic about how you negotiate. And I recommend for new sellers, just write out those, those boundaries. And I define them both on the podcast and in the Poshmark guide for individuals and small businesses. In fact, I created a whole separate seller journal, especially for new sellers, to keep a track There are worksheets for your inventory and worksheets for your negotiating items, defining those boundaries. And I recommend you go through the process of writing this down. As you get more and more accustomed to doing this, it's like a muscle you're building up. As you build up this skill, you'll be able to do this more and more secondhand. But in the beginning, it's very helpful to write this down. And the reason why... Uh, I'm talking about this, will come into play later with this new feature. So what is Match Buyer's last offer? So let's go back to our hypothetical. Let's say $100 is the listing. That's what I set it at. Buyer comes in with 20. I counter offer for 80. Now, typically, the buyer will either be able to accept, reject, or counter offer that. Now, I, as the seller, have an additional option in which I can click match buyer's last offer and override my counteroffer for $80 and send back a new counteroffer that matched the last offer. In other words, $20 in this example. So it's really what I call a boomerang because an offer has come in, you've counteroffered it, but now you're throwing back the original offer as a counter offer. And then the buyer can decide whether they want to accept it. So that's match buyer's last offer in a nutshell. All right, let's talk about this particular feature and what are my thoughts on it? Well, first of all, this is not a feature that I really thought of, you know, and I often will will get into that rabbit hole of thinking, what would I like to see on Poshmark? And I've talked about some of these. In fact, I have a whole episode I did last year on wish lists. You know, what would I like to see on Poshmark? And actually, um, 
bulk sharing and select all. Those are types of things that I've uh, I've really thought about even before they became features. But this particular feature is one that I never really considered. And I will tell you why. If you are methodical and strategic about negotiating, this is not a feature that I recommend you use very often. It's not one that I anticipate you're going to use very often because if you establish guidelines for negotiating, you know what you're willing to negotiate, where that, those bounds are. And if something is coming too low and it's not even close to where you're going to be able to negotiate a, um, uh, a mutually satisfactory price, for the most part, I just recommend you decline it. And I, I've talked about this on prior episodes. I've talked about, the, I talk about this a lot in the book. We've had many instances where, where an offer was just way too low. It was way below our lower bound, much less our zone of agreement. And we've declined them and we just let it go. And then sometimes what we have found is that we won't get another offer. Sometimes we'll get another offer right away, which is much better. But sometimes it could take a couple weeks. It may take a couple months. We've even had uh, instances where we declined an offer and we didn't get a new one until a year later. And the point being is that when you negotiate strategically, you should be confident about whether or not a particular offer meets your standards or is satisfactory enough for you to make the deal. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to do what my friend did with her expensive purse. You don't want to just take the first offer that comes your way because just because you're afraid you're never going to get another offer. Because if you use your emotions to guide you, you're often going to make rash decisions that may not maximize uh, what the item is worth or what should be the satisfactory price. In other words, you're, you may actually feel some seller's remorse uh, if you do that. So I always recommend be strategic when you negotiate, define what your boundaries and your guidelines are. And so you really, I, in the, if you've done that, you should be very strategic about whether or not you're going to decline an offer or counter it. And if the buyer doesn't accept it, you should feel perfectly okay with that because you've gone through the process. You know what will be satisfactory and what won't be in terms of a closing price. So I don't think match buyer's last offer is a feature you should use often if you are uh, planning your negotiation and your pricing strategies smartly, methodically, strategically. And again, I cover this uh, both in the podcast, but really I go in depth on this in the book. Um, but there may be a couple of occasions. So when would I maybe use match buyer's last offer? So there are two instances that come to mind. So let's say, let's go back to our scenario. I list an item for a hundred dollars and, uh, a potential buyer offers 20. I counter for, let's say 80 and they come back with 55. And let's say I've defined my zone of agreement area such that 55 is kind of on the lower end. It's almost touching that that lower bound such that if it were any lower, then I would probably decline it outright. But it's kind of, a, it's still within the zone of agreement, but it's on the lower end. And maybe I want to get it more within the center. So I counter offer for 75. But then I think to myself, well, you know what? 
I've had this item for a little while, and 55 is within my zone of agreement, then I might uh, use the match buyer's last offer and present that as an option for the buyer to, to close the deal. So if you feel like you're being maybe a little too strict on the negotiating where you've been going back and forth and uh, this is and the last offer is still within the zone of agreement, still within that area in which accepting the offer would leave you satisfied enough with the transaction. And maybe that item is one you've had for a while and you haven't had an offer for a while. It might be worth seeing if you can close the deal. Second scenario would be if, let's say, you list an item and you get an offer and it's below your zone of agreement. It's low enough so that you might want to negotiate it or you can just turn it down outright. However, let's say your circumstances change. Let's say uh, you get a job offer or something and you have to move quickly, so you got to get rid of this thing and you've had it for a while, so your priorities change. Then it might be worth doing a match buyer's last offer so that you can close the deal or incentivize the buyer to buy it and then get rid of it quickly. So those are the two scenarios, and they're pretty narrow. One being, if you feel like maybe you're being a little too tough on the negotiating and then you just get a little perspective and you decide, you know what, this is still a reasonable offer, so I'm going to go ahead and, and try to close it. Or in the second scenario, if there's a sudden change in your circumstances such that uh, maybe your your guidelines have to be a little more flexible because your priorities have changed. Outside of those two scenarios, match buyer's last offer is not a feature that I would picture using very often, especially if you have planned out and have been strategic and methodical in setting out your guidelines. And remember, your guidelines are ones that should be private to you as a seller. That's just strictly for you. And again, I cover this on the podcast. I also cover this in my book. So uh, interesting feature, one that uh, it, uh, it's great that, that they've put that there, but one that I don't think you should be using often once you've developed good negotiating skills. And this is a skill. It's a muscle. It's one that you might not be accustomed to using. So I, uh, that's why I recommend write these down. And that's actually one of the reasons why I created the seller journal, a separate seller journal, is because I have a couple of sheets in the Poshmark guide, but I wanted to create a separate journal where you just have many different sheets. So you've got two kinds. You've got your inventory sheet and you've got your negotiating guideline worksheet. And I recommend, especially if you're a new seller, fill those out, write those down, make them concrete and refer back to them when you're in negotiating mode so that you're not swayed by your emotions or your feelings in the moment. That way you can approach negotiating, be methodical and not have to regret those decisions that you make because you're following your own guidelines. Um, the seller journal is also useful for those who are experienced sellers and you just want something to log your inventory, maybe write out your guidelines for negotiating because I've got sample worksheets in there as well. All right. So that's match buyer's last offer in a nutshell, interesting feature, but again, one, I don't think you're going to need to use that often. All right. As a reminder, the Poshmark mini series is on the website. This episode will be added to that. 401 is already on there. Uh, my books, the Poshmark Guide for Individuals and Small Businesses and the Poshmark Seller Journal for Individuals and Small Businesses are both available on Amazon. You also find will find quick links at bemovingforward.com. I also have quick links in the show notes 
for the podcast. So if you're listening on, let's say, Apple or Spotify, you'll find quick links, including my link tree, which will have links to the book. All right. Hope you have a great week and a great weekend. The write-up for today's episode will be at bemovingforward.com. I'll be back next week. You can find the write-up for today's episode at bemovingforward.com. The views expressed by any featured guests are not necessarily those of the host, the program, or affiliates. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and bemovingforward.com. All rights reserved.